Osiris. Welcome to the State of the Garden. This is the official podcast of the New Jersey Cannabis Industry Association. I'm your host, Tom Marshall. Welcome to State of the Garden, and we are here in Princeton, New Jersey, and uh, really quick, some housekeeping, I'd like to remind you that State of the Garden is a member of the Osiris family of podcasts. Go to osirispod.com and check out other music and culture podcasts. So I'm here today with my guest, Aaron Epstein. How are you, Aaron? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me today, Tom. Absolutely. Thanks for coming down to Princeton. Normally, you're up in Woodbridge. Is that correct? That is correct. So, Aaron is the head of the Garden State Dispensary, and you're in charge there. What's your actual title, Aaron? So, uh, my actual title is Executive Vice President. Uh, Our legal name is Compassionate Care Research Institute. Our trade name in New Jersey is uh, Garden State Dispensary. Um, I oversee uh, most operations uh, for our East Coast facilities, which also include uh, Delaware and then a parent company, Canna Pharmacy, uh, I assist in uh, both uh, Pennsylvania and Maryland. Oh, wow. So a multi-state operation. Yeah, we currently hold licenses in four states on the East Coast. And these licenses, I should clarify, are a little bit different. I was just in Colorado, and there I walked into a storefront. And yours is a lot different than just a storefront. It's very much bigger than that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and the, So every state is different with re- regards to how they set up their industry. Uh, in New Jersey in particular, the initial six licenses that were issued were all vertically integrated, which means that if you uh, were able to secure a license uh, for to produce uh, medicinal cannabis, uh, you were awarded the opportunity to cultivate it to process it, to make extractions, and to sell it, to, to, to essentially retail the product as well. From cultivation to sale, if you're not doing any kind of extraction, is there a processing step or, or that's not included in that? So uh, there is some preparation of the product uh, after it's harvested. You have to dry it, you have to cure it, and then you have to package it. Uh, you also have to trim it. Um, uh, so there is a process uh, to prepare it for sale, uh, but uh, up until recently, uh, all, all you had available in New Jersey was raw flour. Right. Um, so you didn't have that processing step of converting it into an oil uh, or an edible um, or a, a topical or a pill. Uh, you were only receiving the raw flour in the state of New Jersey. Okay, and that was covered under the cultivation license. So you're saying yes. up until recently, you're, you've not used the processing license? No. Okay, but you plan to possibly do that soon? Yeah, so uh, since Governor Murphy took office uh, uh, under Executive Order 6 back in January, uh, he, uh, you know, he, he made clear that he wanted to see the extraction market, the, the, the processing market, really expand within the state of New Jersey. That's when you've really seen uh, uh, some of these products start to emerge. 
um, as such, uh, our uh, company is in the process of building out uh, an extractions lab in which we will be creating CO2 uh, extracted products, um, and we will we will be putting on the shelves things such as uh, vape cartridges, oils, um, tinctures, uh, lozenges, uh, topicals, creams, uh, and pills. Wonderful. And all that for medical or in anticipation of uh, adult use recreational? So all this is strictly medical. Um, and, the anticip- and the anticipation is, is just to serve the medical community. Okay. Uh, if New Jersey does decide to legalize adult use, um, which we anticipate they will, then we'll have to adjust and prepare for that as well. Okay, I see. So we've gotten, uh, forgive the pun, into the weeds a little bit. I want to back up a little bit and get a this little... This industry is great for puns. Oh, okay, yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. Um, but uh, you seem very young. What what did you do before this to qualify you for the legal cannabis business? Uh, well, I'm not sure if anything uh, uh, from previous life can fully qualify you for the cannabis business. Uh, <laughs> but I like to say that I'm a recovering attorney um, in my previous life. Uh, I did practice law, and you know I think that my legal background uh, has really served me well in operating in such a, a, a highly regulated industry. Um, the legal compliance, uh, the operational oversight from the New Jersey Department of Health Medical Marijuana Program uh, is very rigorous, and I think it's important to have people within your company that have experience dealing with highly regulated industries um, so that you can keep your business out of trouble. Are you finding it over-regulated, or you think the regulation uh, helps in this situation? Now, I think New Jersey's been very fair. Okay. Um, I think there's a public interest in making sure the product is safe making sure that there is no diversion, nobody's stealing the product and putting on the black market. So right. the intent of these regulations are, are very important and, and they're justified. Um, and you know, the, so far the regulators within our state have been an absolute pleasure to work with oh, good. And, and we've had no issues uh, 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 with regards uh, uh, to working with them. Um, uh, you know, I think uh, one thing that's important is, you know, as the industry expands, you know, so does uh, the threat of, of you know, uh, potential problems with regards to product and uh, uh, to diversion. So, you know, I hope that uh, New Jersey can keep up uh, with the expansion of the program and that detailed oversight that they have. Well, that sounds great. Um, you know, as we walked through your facility, and that's kind of what I want to take the listeners through because... Uh, like me, uh, my guess is most people in New Jersey ha- have no idea what goes on uh, inside the legal marijuana business. And this is my first tour of a big place like that. So, so thank you. Um, but as I walked through, the, you know, a few things caught my eye, uh, one of which was like big locked cage room. <laughs> and, and you had said that that was, uh, that was legally mandated in there and, and possibly not necessary anymore. Was that an archaic thing that, that, that's left over? No, absolutely not. Uh, so we keep all of our finished product and uh, all of our bulk product uh, in, uh, in, a, in a, a certified DEA cage. Um, and by most state law, and every state is different, uh, every state has a separate set of rules and regulations, uh, but most states require you to have uh, some sort of safe room. Usually that's done by uh, installing a vault 
or in our instance in New Jersey, a certified DEA cage, which is common, uh, commonly used in pharmacies, jails, when you're talking about evidence lockers. Um, you know, these are uh, uh, structures that are very difficult to break into. Um, so that's something that, you know, we installed, uh, one, to comply with state regs, and two, to make sure that our product was safe. I got it. Yeah. Uh, now that you say that, it kind of actually makes more sense to me. It just seems sort of like an anachronistic thing to see in the middle of a, a warehouse that it's sort of almost like a jail like cell and, you know, some forcing people to go through the step of, of unlocking it, you know, to conduct their daily business seemed unusual to me. But oh. but now that you explain it that way, we I, want to make it very difficult for people to steal marijuana. Us. <laughs> that That's that's great. So, um this uh, Woodbridge is considered central New Jersey. Is that correct? Yeah. So uh, New Jersey, uh, with regards to the cannabis industry, is separated into three regions. During that initial licensing process, there's six currently operating facilities. There were two licenses awarded in the north, two licenses in the central, two in the south. We are in the central region. Currently, our facility is based in Woodbridge. Okay. Um, and the north being close to New York City, is that the most populous or are they sort of divided into population equal segments? So the North is geographically and demographically the most populous region in the state. Right. Um, They were the last region to actually have two facilities open up. Oh. So for a while, uh, they were probably the most underserved market uh, in the state of New Jersey, and people had to travel either to the central region or to the south region often to get the product that they desired. Now that you have two facilities, um, that is definitely helping with that situation. Uh, when it comes to uh, where facilities will open up in the future, I think based on population uh, uh, and proximity to New York City, uh, I think that that is going to be one of the, if not the most targeted region in the state uh, for new businesses. Hoboken and Jersey City are going to see, uh, if if it becomes adult use, you're saying, where you don't need a prescription, because otherwise there would be no way for an out-of-state person to obtain it. Yeah, so right now, in order to become a patient, you have to be an in-state resident okay, of New right. Jersey. So yes, proximity to New York City has little effect uh, uh, with regards to um, uh, uh, the medical program. Right. Uh, now, uh, that being said, with uh, legalization for direct, for adult use uh, on the horizon, uh, that becomes a much bigger factor. Of course, of course. So um, do you have any data you can share uh, and let me know if this is treading on, you know, stuff that you don't want to talk about, but uh, how many total patients you have or how many come in per day, that type of data? So... Uh, you know, we've seen a massive increase uh, in the number of patients uh, over the past uh, 10 months. Uh, when Governor Murphy took office back in January, we were about 17,000 total patients in the state. We just uh, topped 34,000 patients in the state. So wow. think about that. It's Between double. 2011 and 2018, you added 17,000 patients. Wow. From January 2018 to October 2018, you've added 17,000 patients. <laughs> so, so we've essentially doubled the, the number of uh, medical patients in the state. Now, that is directly because of a couple things. Uh, back in January, when Governor Murphy passed Executive Order 6, part of that executive order was expanding the qualifying conditions within the state of New Jersey. 
it used to be very difficult to become a patient in the medical marijuana program. There were a very restrictive number of ailments that uh, uh, qualify you to become a patient. In January, that was expanded. The qualifying conditions that were added include migraines, chronic pain, and anxiety. Between those three qualifying conditions, it's really opened up the program. I see. We did start to see a slight increase under Christie when he added PTSD. Oh. That has also contributed. That was very late, though, okay. uh, during his term. In addition to that, something that Governor Murphy did that was really excellent um, was that he removed the mandatory public physician registry. So what used to happen is that if you wanted to make a recommendation, if you're a doctor in the state of New Jersey and you wanted to refer or recommend one of your patients receive medical cannabis, you had to register for the medical marijuana program and then your name was listed publicly on the Department of Health's website. This was a huge barrier to the growth of the program because doctors were afraid that that public listing would label them as the pot doctor. Even though they wanted to be a part of this program, they didn't want that information necessarily public for everyone to see because of the stigma attached to it. So what Governor Murphy did is he actually removed the public list of physicians in that it is optional now. If you don't want to be listed as uh, somebody making recommendations to the cannabis industry, you don't have to be. And that has really helped spurn a lot of new physicians getting into the program. That's not required anymore. Um, That said, is there still a step that a doctor does have to take to prescribe it or is it just prescribed like any other medicine now? No. So that's what's incredible about it is that the physicians in the state of New Jersey Uh, If they're writing prescriptions, they have a DEA license. They can write prescriptions for fentanyl, for other opiates, for drugs that can kill you almost instantly. (laughs) If they want to write a recommendation for cannabis, there is an extra step to register for the program. So something that we're hoping to see in future legislation for the medical program is that that DEA license that gives you the right to uh, uh, prescribe fentanyl or other horrible drugs um, uh, uh, will actually give you uh, the right to also make a recommendation for cannabis. Right. The fact that it's been kept on this Schedule 1, there's going to be growing pains and maybe getting left off here and there of of lists like that. The federal status of the drug could be a whole other two-hour conversation. (laughs) We can come back and do it. I, I can totally see that. So um, you didn't really address the how many uh, patients you have or how many come in per day. Did you want to keep it that way? So uh, out of the 34,000, you know, we've, we've seen about 75% of the current registered patients in the state um, at one given time. Now, you can switch between dispensaries. Ah. So it's very common for patients to try one dispensary and then go to another and try another product. I see. Um, so they're, they're constantly changing and visiting other places based on the, the, the products that they desire. Um, on any given day, uh, we will see anywhere between 100 and 250 patients typically. Okay. When I came on, on the day that I came and, and on a subsequent day, uh, it was quite well populated. Your waiting room had a lot of people in it. It's been busy. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, with 9 million people in New Jersey and only six dispensaries, um, are you seeing your current production keeping up with demand? Are you anticipating that becoming an issue very soon? So, you know, the, the extreme growth of the program over such a short period of time uh, is something that uh, 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 we've definitely had to adapt to. Um, uh, in order to make sure that we're keeping up with capacity, 
uh, we have plans to expand our grow uh, facility uh, so from a square footage standpoint by uh, uh, 10 times. Oh, my God. Um, we are uh, currently in Woodbridge uh, utilizing about 8,000 square feet of cultivation space. We have plans to expand that upwards of 100,000 square feet. Wow. Um, now, you know, this is something that was uh, uh, difficult to adjust to because up until Governor Murphy took office, we were actually growing more product than was being purchased. And state regs uh, demand that you only grow the amount of product that is uh, uh, demanded by the current patient base. So because that, we were actually incinerating product to make sure that we were compliant with state regs. Now that the program has uh, 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 taken such a massive step forward with regards to the number of registered patients, uh, we're actually kind of approaching that threshold of where we're not growing enough, which is which is why we're we have all these expansion plans for the near future. Okay. Um, that brings to mind a question. Of course, um, everything is within New Jersey. You can't do any kind of commerce outside of New Jersey. But um, have you ever supplied another dispensary with product that you've grown or vice versa has another uh, dispensary or cultivation uh, facility supplied you with product? So generally new jersey doesn't have a wholesale market so if you go to colorado you have massive growers and they're selling wholesale to other dispensaries uh in new jersey this isn't common practice but there have been two instances one including us where uh we were able to sell in bulk uh some of our product to another one of the license holders two ever transactions two transactions in the history so two business to business transactions yes where where two unaffiliated businesses were supplying product to each other interesting so that that's likely to change i mean obviously it has to change when uh dispensary only um permits are issued absolutely and that's something that we see from the rec bill uh, or from the adult use bills that have been proposed, uh, one of the key features of them is that there is no more vertical integration. There's no more holding a cultivation, processing, and retail license. Those are going to be split up. So if you hold a retailing license, you can't grow it. So just based on that structure of the program, you're going to have a very large wholesale market. Okay. Right. And then there's going to be people like you with massive 100,000 square feet warehouses that do nothing but grow and decide to who, who they sell it to, I guess. Well, it's our anticipation that we will still maintain our retail presence within the state. Uh, but yes, we would be a, a, a wholesaler in a, a setup like that. As long as we're grandfathered, our license is grandfathered in, right. um, there's a lot of things that need to be worked out in the adult use bill. Uh, so there is some uncertainty as to how uh, those regulations will will uh, come into play. Now, when you, uh, this is a this is out of left field, it just made me think, um, you've been going directly, skipping the processing part of your license, going directly from plant to sale in your dispensary. Once you involve extraction, do the prices go up because that's a concentrated product? Does that, in other words, are you, are you more than compensated by the work that goes into the extraction? So the thing that's great about extractions is that you can use a part of the plant that had previously uh, uh, had no use to you. So you can make extractions out of uh, what's called trim, which is 
essentially the leaf that surrounds the cola or the bud, which is what you're selling when you sell flour. Okay. So your ability to utilize more of the plant is really what drives, uh, uh, from an economic standpoint for a business, uh, 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 your desire to produce extractions. Typically in other states, the extractions are a premium product. So you are generally looking at uh, a higher price, I guess, per gram if you're if you're looking at some kind of weight to compare it to, or a gram equivalent. Um, uh, 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 so so it is a considered a premium product um, within the industry. Okay, that, that that's an interesting aspect that I hadn't thought of before. Thanks for uh, for answering that. So, um, like I said, we went on a tour of your facility a couple of weeks ago, and. Um, I took notes, and I think it might be a great way to help our listeners interpret just what's involved if we kind of just do a room-by-room description just from from my notes. Um, And I'll start outside. It's a big warehouse on Route 1 in Woodbridge. How how big is the warehouse? Because it's two stories. Right now we have about 25,000 square feet in Woodbridge. Okay. And if you're a patient... could you just take me through, like, say I'm a first-time patient. Uh, from what I remember, you walk into a room, and I believe you immediately meet with a consultant. Is that right? Counselor. A counselor. Yes. So um, uh, first and foremost, oh, the education and the counseling component of our business is really important. We want to make sure that every single patient that walks through our door knows what they're purchasing, knows how to use it, knows how to be legally law-abiding a patient in the medical marijuana program. Thus, we have hired pharmacists to oversee the operations of all of our dispensary facilities. So we have licensed PharmDs at the dispensary that have designed our counseling program and all of our dispensary operations. When a new patient walks in, the first thing they do, you're correct, meets with a counselor. That counseling session is about 30 to 45 minutes, and every single patient has to participate in it. You cannot purchase unless you participate in the counseling session. During that session, we go over a number of really important topics. First and foremost, we go over the legality of being a cannabis patient in the state. Everyone gets this card in the mail, and they don't know what to do with it. They wonder, hey, I've got a concert in New Hope, Pennsylvania. Can I bring my product? They have a medical marijuana program in Pennsylvania. Can I bring my weed with me? <laughs> How about if I've got a bong in my backseat of my car? Is that allowable? Can I drive um, it around? Right. Right. Uh, you know, I'm, my son's soccer game. Can I smoke? Can I smoke there? You know, I walk by the police department. I walk in front of it on my way to work. Can I smoke while I'm walking to work? These are all questions that we've seen uh, and we want to make sure that patients have the correct answer to them before they start utilizing the product so they don't get in trouble legally. In addition to that, we go over basic terminology such as cannabinoid, terpene, sativa, indica. We want patients to be able to have a general conversation with both their recommending physician and our staff so that they so that they can talk about the product and how it's affecting them. We also talk about safe consumption. We don't want any patient smoking the product. Uh, even though it's a very effective, inexpensive way to consume cannabis, it's the most unhealthy way to consume it. So we don't want anyone smoking it. And then most importantly, with every single patient, we do uh, a condition and symptom analysis and a lifestyle analysis. And the reason that's important is because let's say we have two women that come in and they both have stage four cancer and they're looking to Uh, treat their lack of appetite and their nausea from chemotherapy. First woman can sit at home and watch Netflix all day. Second woman has to 
wake up, get her kids ready for school, drive them to school, go to work, pick them up from school, take them to, uh, take them to dance class, come home, cook dinner, put them in bed. Even though they're both treating the same condition and symptom, because their lifestyles are so different, we're going to recommend two very different products and two very different regimens because the products and regimen we, we recommend for patient one might cause patient two to crash into a tree uh, uh, while she's driving her kids to school. So we're very careful that we understand the lifestyle of each patient so we can give them the direction they need to choose products and a regimen. That's incredible. Would that also um, uh, look like uh, the time of day that you consume it as well? Oh, absolutely. Okay. You know, so so you know, if somebody has a lot to do during the day and they're driving constantly, obviously we're not going to recommend high THC strains, which causes a euphoric or a high effect. Yeah. You know, in that case, we might be recommending CBD only, which doesn't cause any euphoria. Okay. And then at nighttime, then you can utilize THC. So you really get into an intricate regimen yeah. uh, of how to utilize this product safely. That's great. I'm sure uh, there's a lot of people in New Jersey looking forward to more choices than just smoking it or I, I didn't realize that you don't even recommend smoking you recommend then vaping it vaporizing or making your own edi- or, or possibly eating yeah. it right yeah okay interesting so it seems like New Jersey is making leaps to catch up with some of the other legal states we're getting there yeah <laughs> um, and that includes opening more as we talked about dispensaries and cultivation facilities um, six new licenses we're about to hear about in the coming weeks uh, so you might have 12 players in the New Jersey uh, market mm-hmm. so a little bit of competition but as you say it doesn't matter uh, because the number of users is increasing by leaps and bounds um, it's inevitable that the program is going to expand. Um, I don't know when those licenses will be issued. Sometimes this process takes a long time on the government side, grading the application, issuing licenses, uh, uh, doing the investigative background checks. Um, so I anticipate it will be sometime before the end of 2018, if not early 2019. Got it. Sorry for jumping around, but now back to uh, now I'm a patient and I've talked to the counselor. Is that the right terminology? Yes. Um, and uh, I've gotten through that part, and now I'm ready to uh, go into the actual store. And it is a separate door, and it's a separate room. And in there, there's a counter and people behind it that are willing to give you whatever you need at that point. And that was an interesting place and very much smelled like beautiful, a ton of marijuana was available there. <laughs> well, well, the reason it smells is because the cultivation is in the same building. So oh, okay. the dispensary typically doesn't give off too I much of an odor. I remember walking through that door and being hit by a wall of smell. So the, um, a good smell. <laughs> the, it is, you know, it's funny working there for three years. I feel like I'm immune to the smell, but everybody that walks through the doors for the first time uh, will definitely uh, point it out to me. Um but yeah, so so you walk back after you meet with the counselor, you walk to a secure dispensing area, and that's where the actual retail transaction takes place. And all of our uh, dispensary technicians, uh, sometimes in the industry called bud tenders, um, they are actually trained counselors as well. Because just after that first counseling session, the counseling never stops there. After somebody purchases a product for the first time, they come back in and they and they decide, hey, you know, this made me a little too tired, or this made me a little anxious, or this one didn't really help my stomachache. You know, they they you know you're constantly working with the patient to find exactly what works for them. So all the people that actually work the register are also trained counselors. Interesting. 
um, not asking for myself by any means, mm-hmm. but uh, if someone does come in with an anxious uh, diagnosis, do you tend to get away, steer away from sativas? So I think that uh, when you deal with anxiety, uh, the cannabis recommendation is is definitely a little trickier because uh, cannabis through anecdotal data, now there's been no clinical research done because of the federal status of the drug uh, to prove some of this stuff, but based on anecdotal data, what we've seen in person, sometimes cannabis can make people more anxious. And I think that that's common knowledge. Uh, uh, and then also sometimes cannabis can alleviate that anxiety, which is why it's one of the qualifying conditions, anxiety itself. So what's really important when you're dealing with somebody that has an anxiety condition is that they start off slow. And that usually involves using a low THC strain mm. and using a very small amount, uh, uh, what we call microdosing. Okay. You know, taking a very small dosage of cannabis to start out with and then increasing based on how you feel from that. That's great. So um, uh, the next step that uh, patients have to stop there. They turn around and they leave once they've gotten what they They purchase, want. and then, yes. unfortunately, they have to leave at that yes. point. However, uh, we were lucky enough to be able to go through a secret door that actually had sort of a, a James Bond retina scanner. You open the door to the, the growing part and the, the plants and the, the processing part of your facility. It was amazing. Uh, I'd never seen a retina scanner in real life before. <laughs> yeah, we do use retina scan. Um, the thing that's great about retina scan is, especially when you have people handling plants with dirty hands, if you ah. have a thumbprint, uh, your thumbprint scan is going to break pretty often. <laughs> so with the retina scan, no one's touching it, even though it's a lot more expensive than a thumbprint scanner. Uh, 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 it breaks a lot less often. That was neat. So the first thing that uh, we noticed, we had to um, cover our shoes and uh, also get a little mini spray bath. What was that for? So New Jersey is one of two states in the entire country, New Jersey and Delaware, that have banned all of pesticides. Um, all pesticides. All of pesticides. Uh, uh, they are, like I said, one of only two states. Um, in most states, they will allow you to use a, they give you a list of maybe 10, 20 pesticides that are organic, free, healthy for human consumption. New Jersey and Delaware have gone beyond that and said no pesticides whatsoever. Um, So you guys are super paranoid about any kind of outbreak. Absolutely. Because if we do get an outbreak, they're very tough to deal with. So we have uh, what's called an integrated pest management program, uh, uh, which is a number of procedures that we've put in place to make sure that uh, we mitigate any threat of, of pests in our uh, in our facility. First and foremost, shoe covers. Uh, you know, everybody has to cover their feet in certain situations. We'll pay, make people put on full uh, suits uh, when they come into the grow facility. Um, the spray bath that you were talking about, uh, it's um, essentially everyone have to get spray, everyone has to get sprayed down when they walk into any of our uh, rooms that can c- contain plants. That's more to prevent mold and mildew. Uh, than pests, but that's also a common. We kind of lump those together when we think about threats to our plants. Uh, right. The two biggest are mold, mildew, and uh, and pests. 
So with no pesticides, you guys are allowed, though, to use some kind of benevolent creatures, uh, <laughs> like uh, predatory to, to bad things. Like well, they're things. not benevolent to insects, right? We use, uh, yeah, we use predatory insects, predatory uh, to man- as as part of the integrated pest management program. Okay, and what that means is that you know, from time to time within these wo- rooms, we'll release ladybugs lacewings, nematodes. These are insects that eat other bugs. Okay. Um, and those are used purely as a preventative measure. Okay. And they're not bad for the weed itself? For the, nope. The good plant for the plants. Okay. So how many pot species do you have in there? How many were growing? So the first room, I should say, we walk into, that looked to me like uh, like a cloning room or a grow room for very, very small plants. So what we, we call it the mother room and the veg room. And essentially, that's where everything starts. Uh, uh, while all cannabis plants at some point came from a seed, uh, the seeds are normally what you use to start a crop when you're opening a new operation. Uh, when after you find from seed a very healthy, strong female marijuana plant, you want to clone it. You want to replicate that exact plant. Mm. So that's the process that you see in all these facilities is that you're actually taking cuttings off of healthy marijuana plants to create the new ones. You're not starting the new ones from seed. You're taking cuttings from the old ones. In a very, very basic overhead view of what that is, isn't that essentially carefully removing a branch and just putting it in dirt? It's a little bit more involved than that. <laughs> uh, but but yes, that's the theory, uh, is that essentially you're, you're cutting off a branch and then just creating an offspring. Um, now, to answer your question from before, we have about 30 different strains currently uh, in New Jersey that range from very low THC, something that we would recommend to our minor patients, which go as young as 10 months old. Oh my God. Uh, uh, to something of very high THC, you know, which will cause a very strong high or euphoric effect. And then everything in between. You know, when we have a, a, a cultivar selection, we try to have a very wide range of cannabinoid profiles um, of THC and CBD so that we can treat as many of the qualifying conditions as possible. I notice a whole lot of like uh, college age or maybe just recently graduated age people working for you. Is that right? Staffing in the cannabis industry is always tricky because essentially you're starting a new industry in a state. And because of that, there's not a whole lot of people with direct industry experience. So you really have to get creative in your hiring practices. Within our industry, it is common uh, for people to be hired from the black market, people that operated in the cannabis market before it was legal. Grew in their basement. Exactly, or in the field somewhere. I generally tend to stay away from those uh, those types of hires, which is not a very popular way to operate in some circles. I've often gotten booed on stage when I've talked about it. Hmm. Um, I have found more consistency, consistency and success by hiring people that are degreed in related fields. So, for example, we have a co-op program with Rutgers University where students can actually uh, come to our facility and work and receive school credit. So we have students uh, in their uh, horticulture program, in their plant sciences department, uh, that have traditional education 
in horticulture, in uh, uh, pest management, in propagation. You know, these are kids that have been trained for years, have worked in labs, internships with DuPont, Hershey's, all these companies that have massive agricultural operations. We it, we have found a lot of success recruiting those individuals and teaching them the marijuana side instead of having to teach them how to operate in a commercial agricultural facility. And if everything goes the way that it should, soon that stuff will be taught, specific cannabis stuff will be taught in schools as well. We are seeing programs emerge uh, in, uh, you know, teaching cannabis. I know University of Vermont has a, a, a cannabis-specific uh, degree. Um, I, I believe the University of Maryland has put something uh, into their pharmacy program. I know that it's taught uh, uh, cannabis is introduced at Rutgers University uh, in their pharmacy uh, uh, program. Uh, so we're starting to see uh, uh, cannabis being taught within the universities, which is great because this is a, becoming a massive industry uh, in the country. And, you know, it's something that presents a lot of opportunity for young people. And it makes no sense not to start discussing this at the university level. But also probably being taught out West as well, I imagine. They've been legal longer. Yeah, I'm not sure of, of you know, the programs available out West, uh, you know, we know that uh, one of the first clinical research studies uh, came out from Arizona, oh. which has a great uh, 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 medical cannabis program within their state. Okay. Um, so, so we have seen uh, definitely some research come out of out West. I'm not sure specifically about the programs they have, though. To continue on the theme of uh, walking around your facility, um, there was a strange bin that you said was a drying bin and uh, stuff in there was going to get incinerated, but that was that wasn't good weed. That was that was trimmings and stems and stuff. Is that right? Yeah. So that actually all just recently changed uh, over the past week and a half. Oh. The uh, New Jersey uh, Department of Health uh, has changed the way we have to throw away our marijuana waste. Oh. Um, so that was mandated as well. That was carefully regulated as well. So yes, uh, before. Up until a two, about a week and a half, two weeks ago, uh, the state made you uh, hold on to all of your cannabis waste, which included your stems, your uh. fan leaves, stuff that was not sellable. And then you would have to uh, uh, submit a report to the Department of Health of how much waste you had, um, pretty much to the gram. And uh, uh, then they would come down, you would rent a U-Haul, and then you would incinerate, they would escort you uh, to an incineration facility. Um, the biggest problem with that was being storing it. You don't want to be storing waste right. for long periods of time. So that was the biggest I see. problem from our standpoint. Now they've adopted a more uh, a liberal uh, waste plan, which allows you to, to make it uh, completely unusable on your own before you dispose of it. Typically that involves a wood chipper, uh, some cardboard, and like some bleach spray. Uh, okay. That's, uh, that sounds a little silly to me. I wonder... If that's uh, only New Jersey or if that's kind of typical across the country. You know, the state is just trying to make sure that, listen, you're not putting in the garbage. Somebody's coming, sifting through your garbage okay. and then getting product. So, you know, the intent behind the law is very good. Uh, the one that was just introduced, I think, is much more practical. Okay. And we're, we're happy that it was uh, implemented. Um, downstairs still um, was a drying room. And that was a bunch of beautiful-looking plants hung upside down, and it smelled like a brewery. It smelled like hops. <laughs> so the uh, uh, so after we leave the veg room, uh, obviously we go into a flower room uh, in which the plants flower, and then after 
uh, the flowering cycle is done, then we harvest them and they go into the drying room. Um, in the drying phase, essentially, you're going to lose a significant uh, weight uh, off the plant. Um, and uh, it, it's pretty... Uh, it's a pretty simple process. You kind of hang them upside down and for 10 to 14 days in regulated temperature and humidity, relatively low temperature, relatively low humidity, uh, the plant dries out. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, the smell, um, actually uh, the, the terpenes, uh, which is what give the plant your smell um, and flavor uh, are actually kind of uh, 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 suppressed a little bit during the drying phase. Uh, Post-drying, uh, we have to go through a curing process, which really livens those terpene profiles up again. Um, but but for those 10 to 14 days while they're drying, um, they kind of just hang there, and, and, and we try to get all the water out. Got it. And also downstairs, and we're avoiding, uh, we're going out of order a little bit of, of, a little bit out of, of the plant's life yeah. cycle. Um, but the last step before being sold to people um, is a precision final trimming, weighing, and packaging part. And I saw a bunch of people working very fast with some very nice-looking uh, stainless steel trimmers. And they look like precision people that, that knew what they were doing. And, and kind of basically isolating the bud, tripping, trimming away all those little mini leaves that aren't that useful. Yeah, so when you're selling a, a raw flower... Uh, within the state, uh, you want to make sure that you're only giving patients uh, uh, the bud, the cola, essentially the center of the cannabis flower, um, all of the fan leaves, uh, the sweet leaf or sugar leaf, as it's called, which are the little leaves on the outside of the plant. Those are going to be much lower in potency. They can be great for extractions okay. as you collect them in bulk, but not good to serve to a patient in raw flour. So we make sure that we are trimming all of those away uh, so that the patient is just getting the most potent part of the plant, which is the cola. Got it. And uh, getting very close to the end of the tour, you took us upstairs, and that was like the big grow room. I don't know what you call that. But uh, that was where that was kind of like the real farm, and that's where there's a big crop of mature plants were up there. So so take, take a quick step back. Uh, we start out in the veg room. The reason it's called the veg room is because it's in the vegetative stage of the process. Uh, lights in that room are on anywhere between 18 hours and 24 hours. Now, when you turn the lights off uh, for a cannabis plant, a hormone called PFR builds up. That hormone... Uh, when it reaches a critical point, will tell the plant, I'm ready to start flowering. So uh, after the plant gets a certain size in the vegetative stage, then we move it to that flower room. And the only thing that changes is that light cycle. We go from 18 hours on to about 12 hours on. Mm. So when the lights are off for 12 hours, this hormone PFR is building up at that 12-hour mark. It reaches the threshold where it tells the plant, I'm ready to start flowering. That's when the plant starts to develop its cannabinoids, its terpenes, essentially the active ingredients that cause it to have medicinal effects on New Jersey patients. It, the plant will then sit in that room, the 12 and 12 room or the flower room, uh, for anywhere from 8 to 11 weeks, depending on the strain. After that period of time, then we harvest it, bring it right down to the drying room. And up there, you had two strains that um, 
you showed me how I can touch the leaf below the bud and kind of smell why they're named a certain name. One was bubblegum something, right? We do have bubblegum. That is one of our more popular strains right and, now. And it really did smell like bubblegum when you did when you touch that. What what type of is that like an indica or what what strain would that be? Yeah, bubblegum is more of a hybrid. Um, we actually get it's it's funny we get a. Uh, 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 different reports on how that makes people feel, uh, whether it gives them energy or makes them tired. Um, I, I dislike labeling things, indicas and sativas, okay. when they've been crossbred, ah. because I think it's so difficult to tell. So we just call uh, it a hybrid. Yeah, we just call it a hybrid. I see. Yeah. And then there was one called Dosi Do that you said was like the new favorite. So Dosi Do has not been released yet on oh. our shelves. Uh, uh, we did make a, a, a social media post that it is anticipated to come out, so you didn't just blow the secret. <laughs> uh, but we uh, uh, we're really excited. It's a super popular strain popular out where? west. Oh, um, out west. Okay. So we're excited uh, uh, that we're going to be bringing it to market on the east coast. We think. Now, it, now how would you describe that it. that strain? Um, to be honest, I'm not exactly sure uh, the, the 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 lineage or the genetics of Dosi Do yet. Okay. Uh, as we get closer to. Um, uh, releasing that strain, I'll familiarize myself with the intricacies of its lineage. Got it. Well, Aaron, I've kept you way longer than we normally uh, talk to people um, on State of the Garden, but that is only because it's been tremendously interesting. Uh, thank you very much for your time. Absolutely. And anytime you want to have me back, I'd be more than happy to join you. And I was going to say the same thing. Anytime <laughs> you want me back at your place, I want to take that tour. I want to bring people. Is there a public tour at any of these um Dispensaries. I think it's something that New Jerseyans would like to see. We're hesitant uh, uh, to really expand tours, and that's because you know we're trying to protect the safety and integrity of the product. You know, exactly. the more people you bring through these rooms, the bigger the threat of introducing pests yep. or some other kind of contaminant. Uh, one group that I love to give tours to is recommending physicians. This program doesn't succeed. This program doesn't grow unless physicians are on board. Got it. So a lot of times, when even though you know my time is limited, you know I make time to give physicians that firsthand experience of trying to understand what this program is about because we want them on board. We want them recommending cannabis to their patients. Perfect. So if you want a tour, become a doctor. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, Aaron, thank you very much and I uh, hope to talk to you and see you soon. Thanks, Tom. This podcast is in the loop. The Legion of Osiris Podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at osirispod.com.